we're going to be looking at 1 Samuel chapter 2. 1 Samuel uh, chapters 1 and 2 are often texts that are selected. Uh, if someone's looking for a topical message on Mother's Day, that's not what I'm looking for. Uh, it just happens to be where we end up uh, today. And it is a very important section. So 1 Samuel uh, chapter 2, reading verses 1 through 11. This is the word of God. Then Hannah prayed and said, My heart rejoices in the Lord. In the Lord my horn is lifted high. My mouth boasts over my enemies, for I delight in your deliverance. There is no one holy like the Lord. There is no one besides you. There is no rock like our God. Do not keep talking so proudly, or let your mouth speak such arrogance. For the Lord is a God who knows, and by him deeds are weighed. The bows of the warriors are broken, but those who stumbled are armed with strength. Those who were full hire themselves out for food, but those who were hungry are hungry no more. She who is barren has borne seven children, but she who has had many sons pines away. The Lord brings death and makes alive. He brings down to the grave and raises up. The Lord sends poverty and wealth. He humbles and he exalts. He raises the poor from the dust and lifts the needy from the ash heap. He seats them with princes and has them inherit a throne of honor. For the foundations of the earth are the Lord's. On them he has set the world. He will guard the feet of his faithful servants, but the wicked will be silenced in the place of darkness. It is not by strength that one prevails. Those who oppose the Lord will be broken. The Most High will thunder from heaven. The Lord will judge the ends of the earth. He will give strength to his king and exalt the horn of his anointed. Then Elkanah went home to Ramah, but the boy ministered before the Lord under Eli the priest. Before we consider uh, this passage together, we're going to pray. I'm just going to ask, we, we do this periodically. Um, so I'm you just take a few moments individually uh, to bow before the Lord and to pray. Everyone has different circumstances of the week, different life circumstances, and uh, sometimes we get busy. Sometimes we don't actually take time to bow in the presence of the Lord. And so just take a few moments uh, to lay out your heart and thoughts before God. And then after a few moments of silent prayer, uh, I'll lead us together. So let's pray. Lord, this morning we have uh, already sung in acknowledgement and worship that you are a God who is holy that your faithfulness is great, and that you love us. And these are things which in some ways 
almost seem incompatible. That a God who is so holy could love people like us. That a God who is so holy could be faithful to us. And yet, Lord, you are in countless ways, in ways that we don't see or perceive, in ways that we take for granted. Uh, Your faithfulness is given to us and demonstrated every day. Every day there are new mercies in the morning. Lord, I pray that you will give us eyes to see them. I pray that you will open the eyes of our heart to know you and to understand your ways, to perceive you in the splendor of your holiness, in the beauty of your holiness, and draw us into it so that we are changed into your image as a result. Lord, we pray that this morning you will open your word, help us to understand it, help us to apply it uh, properly and carefully, and change us by it. Help us to think great thoughts of you, for even our highest thoughts fall infinitely short of the reality of who and what you are. So enlarge our capacity, help us to know you better. We pray, Lord, also that your hand will be upon everyone today uh, who requires a special touch of grace. For we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, today uh, is Mother's Day, and this text is often used uh, around or on Mother's Day. Not often around it, but rather on it. Uh, because Samuel, the child who's in view here, is in fact uh, miraculously conceived. His mother Hannah is not able uh, to have children apart from the intervention of the Lord. And that actually carries forward a pattern that you see all the way from Genesis forward. So here we have once again uh, sort of miracul- a miraculous conception to bring a unique and special child into the world who the Lord will use in an extremely mighty and powerful way. Of course, this motif uh, reaches a point of utter fulfillment in the incarnation of Jesus Christ, the the truly miraculous conception of all conceptions, uh, without any human father at all. Uh, The Lord God brings uh, his son into the incarnate state uh, in the most miraculous way, imaginable. It is worth saying, also, just off to the side, this may become important in a little tiny bit, it is worth saying, too, that in one sense, just one sense, God the Father also entrusts his incarnate son to an adoptive family. Joseph is not the biological father of Jesus of Nazareth but he raises him as his own. When God the Father brings his son into the world, he does so in somewhat of an adoptive situation. I think that actually sanctifies and beautifies adoption more than anything else. Hannah gives birth to this child, Samuel. When he's weaned, she takes him to the temple uh, where he's going to be raised in order to learn how to serve the Lord. She gives him completely over to God uh, in terms of dedication. And then she prays and she rejoices. This song will actually, it's not uh, copied by Mary in the Magnificat when she's celebrating the conception of of Christ. Uh, But there are patterns here in this song that you can discern in Mary's language as well uh, when you get to her song in the Gospel of Luke. 
And notice what she says. That Hannah prayed and said, My heart rejoices in the Lord. In the Lord my horn is lifted high. My mouth boasts over my enemies, for I delight in your deliverance. Notice what she does not say. She does not say, My heart rejoices in my son. She does not say, My heart rejoices in this child. She says, My heart rejoices in the Lord. The child is a means to draw her to worship the Lord, but the focus is on the Lord. Her heart is not rejoicing in the, in the primary sense in the fact that she's a mother. Her heart is rejoicing in the fact that she has a living relationship with the living God. In her context, Samuel is one blessing from God, yet she can still have a relationship with God apart from him. Her heart directly moves to the Lord. My heart rejoices in the Lord. My innermost being rejoices in God. He is my focus. Everything else, every other possible human relationship, I receive as a blessing from his hand, but none of them are ultimate. None of them can be ultimate, or they are idolatrous. And I will talk about that in a little bit. Only God can be the one ultimately in whom our hearts rejoice. He is the only one who can be loved with heart, mind, soul, and strength, explicitly and implicitly, with every fiber of our being, maximally, nothing else and no one else and no other configuration of relationship can ever occupy that place in our hearts. It is idolatry to rejoice in anyone or anything or any relationship more than you rejoice in the Lord. I think that needs to be said. Which is why I said it. My heart rejoices in the Lord. In the Lord, my horn is lifted high. Now, many of you know this by rumor, because I've mentioned it before, uh, but I used to play the trumpet, and I was phenomenal. Uh, I was. Uh, and, and I had to sell it uh, when I went to university uh, to cobble together a little bit of, of money for tuition and all of the rest. So I haven't played in, oh, Merced, I don't want to do the math. I haven't played in a lot of years. Uh, so I'm probably not very good at this point. My embouchure is probably, it would probably collapse. You, know, you have to build up that strength in your mouth to be able to play. Um, and so it was quite common for me when I would first think about the language in, in the Bible or in the Psalms about the horn being lifted up. You, know, you, you think of a musical instrument, you know, a, a trumpet or, you know, not a French horn, that terrible. Uh, but a trumpet, that's a powerful instrument. You know? And so you, you lift that up and, and you proclaim the praises of the king. And it's a beautiful image, except it's not at all what the Bible is saying. It's not a musical instrument at all. It's a symbol of power, often a symbol of a king, which is why in Daniel's visions or in Revelation, you'll get the horns on the beast symbolizing kings. Horn on the beast is not a musical instrument. Right? It's like a rhinoceros's horn, like an elephant's tusk. If, if the psalmist were writing in, North, in a North American context, they would probably uh, refer to antlers. It's the symbol of power. It's the symbol of strong defense. 
It's also an inclusio in this text. So if you look at verse 1, in the Lord my horn is lifted high, and you look at the very last line in verse 10, he will give strength to his king and exalt the horn of his anointed. That reference then of exalting or lifting high the horn is the bracket which constrains the interpretation in the middle. It's all about how God is imparting strength. It's all about how God is able to intervene to those who are weak and empower them and strengthen them so they can do what they could not do on their own. Hannah says, my heart rejoices in the Lord. My innermost being praises God because in him and in him alone, not in my son, but in him and in him alone, my strength is established. Not in my family, but in God. Only God is my strength established. My mouth boasts over my enemies, for I delight in your deliverance. When, when you rejoice in the Lord and God empowers you, He will deliver you. And His deliverance leads to, leads to more rejoicing. My mouth will praise you, I will honor you, my heart rejoices, my mouth boasts, because my enemies have been defeated. Why? Because you have delivered me. You can very easily sort of transpose this uh, over into the gospel, right? How much more should our hearts rejoice in the Lord? How much more has he strengthened us? How much more has he delivered us from sin through what Jesus Christ has done for us on the cross and resurrection? If any people have ever had a reason to actually praise God with their inmost being, it's us. Because of what he has done, giving us the perfect deliverance to the atonement and resurrection of Jesus Christ. And note the, uh, note the very personal uh, pronouns here. My heart, my horn, my mouth, my, my, my. It's not self-centered. It's the personal response of someone who's in awe of what God has done for them. As they look at who God is, but, they, but who God is, they can only connect with in terms of who they are as a person. And so they're not just rejoicing that God's a deliverer in general, they're rejoicing that God is their deliverer particularly. It is my heart, my heart, that overflows with praise. It is my strength that you have established. You have delivered me. You are a personal God who delights in his children. But you move from my, my, my to none, none, none in verse 2. Quite literally, there is none holy like the Lord. There is none besides you. There is none. There is no rock like our God. So as much as we rejoice in God, we rejoice in God because he is utterly and absolutely unique in every possible way. There is no one holy like the Lord. This is not just talking about moral righteousness, although there is an element of that. The angels who exist, Isaiah 6 and, and Revelation 4, uh, the, the angels, the seraphim that exist to, to express his praise perpetually in the heavenly court by crying out, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty who was and is and is to come. Or holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. The whole earth is filled with his glory. Those angels who exist to, to perpetually call that out are themselves without sin. So they're not merely saying, you are sinless, 
They are unfallen beings themselves. They are without sin, or they couldn't be in his presence. They're not just saying you are without sin. They are saying you are categorically unique. You are set apart from everything else. There is absolutely nothing like you. Only Yahweh, only the Lord is holy in that sense. There is no one holy like the Lord. There is no one beside you. It's a sort of parallelism. There's no one in your category. There's no one in your class. You are utterly unique in every possible way. Independent, not dependent on anything. And there is no rock like our God. Part of the song of, the hymn of Moses at the end of his life in Deuteronomy There is no rock like our God as even our enemies concede. No shelter like the covenant God of Israel. No Lord who can protect you like Yahweh. No God who is a shelter and a tower for his people. No God who can actually deliver you from what you need deliverance out of and from. He alone is God. There is no rock like our God. Everything else will disappoint you in the end. If God is not your shelter, if if God is not your security, if God is not your foundation, if he is not your fortress, if he is not your rock, you will end in ruin and disappointment. It's inevitable. Because nothing else lasts. Nothing else is eternal. There's no one else that's holy. There's no one else who's powerful. There's, there's no one else who's real besides the Lord. And, and, and we, we cobble together our own little shelters and, and, and just the littlest trace of a storm knocks them down. We, we build up our little house of cards and crawl inside and as long as there's no breeze, we think we're secure. A little little puff of adversity, it all comes down. And, and instead of actually, deeply committing ourselves to God, we, we just try to put the cards back up. Maybe this time. Maybe it'll last this time. No, there, there is no other rock. There just, there just isn't another God. There is no other Lord. There is none besides you. God has no colleagues. God has no peers. There is simply no one like him. As a result, do not keep talking so proudly or let your mouth speak such arrogance. This becomes actually a central motif in the book, which Lord willing we'll talk about next week. This, this, this actually, there's a metaphor here that's not translated uh, that actually, in some ways, provides the interpretive key of all of 1 Samuel. We'll talk about that next week. For the Lord is a God who knows, and by him deeds are weighed. So, this is, the, this is the God who exists. Absolutely righteous, absolutely holy. And he is the judge. He's the evaluator of your heart. He's the evaluator of your thoughts and words and deeds. He knows absolutely everything about you. And so when you stand in his presence, which you are in in one sense perpetually, because in him we live and move and have our being, he is everywhere. He, he is the medium and the environment and the atmosphere in which ev- all of creation dwells. 
Where is there room for arrogance? Where, where, where is there room to, to, to cast yourself as a big shot when you're standing in the presence of God? Probably most of us would have the due humility. I'm, I'm not sure how many of you um, like the NBA. I know we're Canadian, so we have to like hockey. But some of you probably like the NBA, or you've at least heard of it. And therefore, some of you have probably heard of the Toronto Raptors. Some of you may not care very much about them. Uh, it's fine. Um, but, but this year, this year, they were good. Until it mattered. And, and, and then they weren't. And, and that's just what it's been the last number of years. Um, I'm not sure if the Leafs have been like that, but I, I understand they have as well. Uh, and the Blue Jays. Uh, basically, every Toronto sports team there is. Except for one, Nathan, who's that? Toronto TSC. The soccer club that no one cares about except Nathan is doing well. So, so that's, that's good. We're, we're happy for Nathan that, that that is taking place. LeBron James, I have to admit, I, I have come to over the years have a grudging respect for him. Uh, no one will be better than Michael Jordan to me, but... LeBron James is a generational talent. He is utterly phenomenal. If he had the heart of Michael Jordan, he would have won 12 championships by now. LeBron James kills the Raptors. Now, I've played basketball with some of you. I'm pretty good. <laughs> but I don't suspect that if LeBron James showed up here, which is possible, we do text every once in a while, he's just usually busy. <laughs> But if he showed up here and he said, all right, Steve, let's, let's go up and, and play one-on-one -on -one up in the gym for old times' sake. You know, I might say, well, LeBron, you know, I'm pushing 40 now. You know, I'm not quite as quick as I used to be. But, but sure, I'm, pretty, I'm probably as good as you, right? No matter how arrogant you were, when you actually stand in the presence of greatness, you're not going to boast, right? Like, like you're not going to talk to Le tell LeBron James, yeah, you know what? I get a game-winning shot in grade 9, too. Like, you're not going to go back about your history and how wonderful you are and how accomplished you are and all of the rest. You're just going to recognize, I don't have much to talk about when it comes to my basketball proficiency in the presence of LeBron James. But we live in the presence of Almighty God. And we're a boastful, arrogant, prideful, pride-filled people. Jockeying for position... Trying to, trying to get a pecking order and a hierarchy of where we slot in, higher than this person, gifted this way. We live in the presence of God. Where is there a place for boasting? Where is there a place for arrogance when everything you do is done in the very presence of God? You do realize... God's, whatever we are, God is a lot more of it in a good way. So we might be strong. God's stronger. We might be creative. God created color. Go create a new primary color this afternoon. See how easy it is. God created matter. Go create something that's categorically, ontologically, and metaphysically distinct from what you are. 
Go invent someone this afternoon who's a living, breathing person. No, all of a sudden our creative gifts don't seem that significant in the presence of God. Well, we're, some of the, you know, we're, we're pretty smart. God knows everything. Everything. There's just nothing. Well, we're pretty moral. God is infinitely pure and righteous and perfect. There's just nothing for us to boast in about at all. The Lord is a God who knows by him deeds are weighed. Everything you are and do, God knows thoroughly and evaluates accordingly. Then in verses 4 through 8, you get this sort of reversal theology. God is able to bring the... The basic premise runs this way. God is able to reverse things so that the arrogant are brought low and the humble are exalted. That's what it is. The arrogant are humbled, the humbled are exalted. You have different sociological categories that are used here, uh, very common ones. It was understood that often uh, the wicked may be wicked, precisely because they're willing to cheat and steal and take advantage of the court system. And so when you talk about the rich and the powerful being brought low, it's not that they're, uh, there's something that, that God hates rich people or, or that God has sort of this, this favoritism for poor people. And the book of Proverbs will tell you that you, might be, you very well might be poor because you're, you're lazy and wicked. And you might very well be affluent because you work diligently and use the gifts that God has given you, and you're a good steward of things. So you can't just sort of look at someone and say, well, they're poor, God loves them, they're rich, God hates them, or vice versa, which is a mistake other cultures make at different times. But often when you get these categories, it's because the assumption is the poor have been downtrodden because they won't play the game the way other people in society do. They're being oppressed by the wicked who are growing rich on the basis of that oppression. So this isn't a categorical statement of how God views rich and poor demographically. It's sort of this this Old Testament context where the righteous are often identified with the poor because of the oppression of some in the society who are rich. God can reverse all of that. Verse 5b, I want to talk about a little bit. She who was barren has born seven children, but she who has had many sons pines away. And I realize that, that in this, I, I'm, I'm stepping out a little bit onto thin ice. I know that. I've never done that here before. So I'm going to give it a shot and see how it goes. This is a hymn of praise that Hannah is offering in light of the birth of her, in light, in light of her son, as she's dedicating him to the Lord. But you'll notice it hasn't been about her son at all. Not one little tiny bit. It's been entirely about God. In some ways, Mother's Day is not the right day to say this, and in other days, it is the right day to say that. Or in other ways, it is the right day. Better now than any other time, I suppose. Children are not the reason for living. God is. Children are not the reason for life. In fact, in my judgment, very often in our Western society, even in evangelical homes, children 
have been placed in what is virtually an idolatrous position. And they have been desired for what they can do for the emotions of their parents rather than for what they are intrinsically. So that children are seen, even by, even by evangelicals, in my judgment, as being a means to personal fulfillment for the adults. That is idolatrous. I personally think, this is my own opinion, there's an verse that says this, this is an analysis of culture from my perspective, I might be wrong, the ice may be too thin. I think our evangelical churches have, have an idolatrous view of the family. I'm saying it bluntly, you can, I'll modify it if you want, but that's what I think. Or else we are within a hair of crossing that line. We are so close to usurping the place of God with a view of family, in my judgment. Now, this goes in the face of the fact that Jesus was unmarried and didn't have children. Also, Paul was unmarried. And I have yet to see it taken seriously in how we view church culture that when Paul says, it is better to be unmarried so that, the, so that we can have our full attention devoted to serving the Lord, I have yet to see that actually taken seriously as part of how we form and view church culture. I just don't see it. But it's part of Scripture. It's explicitly said. Scripture is our authority. Scripture is our authority. It's what the Word of God says. It's not interpretation. It's the words of the verse. So how do you balance that? Well, historically, although I will just say this, you do realize also that Jesus taught that there is no marriage in heaven which means the perfect time of human community will not be a time where there is marriage at all. And there will not be nuclear family relationships in glory. I think that's really important when it comes to accessing life and love and community and relationships in the body of Christ. We have to take that seriously. The best way of living imaginable in glory, there is no marriage. Which also in one sense, is depressing. Just one. And that's this. It's only in glory that we'll be perfect. Which means if you're married, you're never going to be married to someone perfect. Ever. Ever. The only time you'll actually be worth being married to, you won't be married. Right? <laughs> that's how it works. You're going to die. You're going to go to glory. You're going to be like, oh, at this point, for the first time in my life, I'm actually marriageable. It's not going to happen. It's not going to happen, right? The early church, historically, prized singleness over marriage. That's a historical fact. For centuries, the early church prized singleness over marriage. Now, is that, a, did the early church have a balanced view of sexuality and family life? No. No, they didn't. But it's easy to see problems other cultures and times have when you're blind to the problems in, uh, uh, of your own time and culture. 
And that's why the word of God needs to be our authority. That's why we need to form our view of things on the basis of scripture. Because the early church was wrong, and our culture is just as wrong, but on the other side. As the centuries went on, you began to have the monastic movement in Roman Catholicism. Today, priests aren't allowed to get married. And the whole idea was, priests are superior to the laity, uh, monks and nuns, they, they commit themselves to the Lord they, so they don't get married. So, single devotion to the Lord is a higher state of living spiritually than if you're married and have children. This lasted for centuries, creating all kinds of problems, still creates problems today. The reformers, when they were breaking from Rome, didn't break they didn't actually break away from Rome entirely. Their ecclesiology, the view of baptism, the view of church and state, there's all kinds of Romish things that come along uh, with the Reformation, to be honest. But one of the things that they did was they said, all right, Luther, who was a monk, he says, you know what? This whole monastic movement is garbage in terms of salvation, soteriology, and all of the rest. And, and, and furthermore, I'm going to get married. Really, basically, just to, just to stick it to the man, you know, just to say to the Roman Catholic Church, I'm getting married, you know, that's all there is to it, you can't stop me. And, and marriage became this knee-jerk reaction against the teaching of the Roman Catholic Church in the Reformation. Protestantism, then, began to develop in reaction to the incorrect view of the Roman Catholic Church, their own theology of family but you almost never formulate a theology properly when you're formulating in, re in reaction to something. You almost inevitably go too far the other way. Almost always. I think in our culture today, an additional impetus in this direction has been a knee-jerk reaction against feminism. And you can't just say feminism. Because feminism is a shockingly nuanced movement, movements plural, over decades in our society. But somehow the church has reduced it to feminism, singular, as if it's all the same thing. And feminists, plural, all believe the same thing. And the evangelical church has just gone sort of screaming about the importance of family in response to feminism and divorce rates and all of the rest. But again, you don't formulate a theology properly when you formulate it in reaction to something negative. You only formulate a theology properly when you come to the Bible to see what God's word actually says about things. That's the way to do it. So because of these historical realities, I'm utterly, absolutely convinced that we in our evangelical churches simply have a sub-biblical view of singleness, marriage, and children. That's my conviction. That's what I believe. And I think we desperately need to recapture a biblical way of orienting our communities where the family is no longer put in a place of idolatry. Allow me to go out a little thinner. Mm. 
Even if the ice breaks, the water may be shallow underneath. <clears throat> I think we also, my personal view, opinion, this is opinion. I think we need to be a lot more sensitive with how we joke around about these things. In 1 Samuel chapter 1, you may remember that Eli thinks that Hannah is drunk because she is pouring out her heart in such agony and pain in her own situation. Her heart is breaking because of her circumstances. It would not likely have been funny for Eli, or helpful for Eli to come along and make a joke about it. Likely would not have been funny or helpful for a Levite to come along and make a joke about it. Opinion. If I was, if I was the evangelical pope, and could speak ex cathedra and make an, a, a, a law, I would make a law that we had an utter moratorium on joking with married couples about when they're going to have children and joking with single adults about when they're going to get married. I would, I would, I would say, never again. Never again. Because it's painful. And it's not helpful. And then also to say this. Because I'm not in the water now already. Me as well. We also need to say this because this is true. God can have different paths and plans for different people's lives without dividing it all up into inferior and superior. And what God does in someone's life to bless them isn't necessarily what he needs to do in someone else's life to bless them. There are different roads and paths that God calls people to walk. And so we just don't need the hierarchy. We can just allow God to call people and give people for the path that they're going to walk and recognize it and bless the Lord for the diversity in unity that is ours in Christ in the body. Where, thank God, it's not a cookie cutter where everyone fits into this box. There are different ways of living to serve and honor the Lord. We all need each other. It's a community. This is the family. That's the whole thing. This is the family. Because this family is the family that's going into glory. These are your brothers and sisters. These are your relatives forever. These are the people that you will love then if you don't love now, so start loving them now too. Right? This is your family. In heaven there is no marriage, but there is this. All of us whose faith is in Christ, who are in one body, all of us together. This is forever. This is eternal. This is actually the reality of which the nuclear family is the shadow. The nuclear family is an analogy of this family. This is not the analogy of the nuclear family. You have it backwards if that's what you think. The church is the real family. The nuclear family is the shadow of it. That's how it works. And I will say this, and then I'll move on. Pulling on a life jacket. We are, we are utterly blind. We are just utterly, shockingly devoid of all sight and sensitivity 
and perceptiveness if we do not recognize that some of God's finest children are unmarried and without children. If we cannot see that, we have no vision at all. Verse 6. The Lord brings death and makes alive. He brings down to the grave and he raises up. God is in charge of life. The issues of life and death belong to God. He reverses things. Then, uh, verse 9 and 10. He will guard the feet of his faithful servants, but the wicked will be silenced in the place of darkness. It is not by strength that one prevails. Those who oppose the Lord will be broken. The Most High will thunder from heaven. The Lord will judge the ends of the earth. In other words, there is a day of accounting. And so how we live is very important. There is a God in heaven who's holy. There's a God in heaven who's putting all of this together. There's a God in heaven who gives life and death. Make sure you know him. But he also gives strength to his king and he exalts the horn of his anointed. Now, this is not talking about Jesus. But as a Christian, you can't help hear those echoes, right? Oh, the Lord brings down to death and makes alive. He exalts the horn of his king, the anointed. The gospel of Christ. This side of history, we can't help but hear its echo. Then Elkanah went home to Ramah, but the boy ministered before the Lord under Eli the priest. So Hannah prays Elkanah, her husband, and they go back home. The boy ministers before the Lord because their whole orientation is not to their child. Their whole orientation is to the Lord God Almighty. They give their child to the temple to learn how to minister before the Lord. Why? Because her heart rejoices in the Lord. And she here again gives over her son into what is really a quasi-adoptive situation. She comes up and visits him once a year. But she entrusts his raising to the Lord. Rama goes home. Sorry, uh, Elkanah goes home to Rama. Hannah goes home. Samuel stays in the temple. Let me just say this. Please, hear this, if you've heard nothing else. If you brought your kids here today, take them home with you. (laughs) That is not what the text is saying, okay? It's not. Please take them home. But, take them home to train them to serve the Lord. Take them home to raise them uh, to to be a a boy or girl, man or woman of Christ. Raise them with the full focus on the Lord and look to Him, not your own strength, because He's the only one who can give you strength. He's the only one who can empower you. And children are a gift from God. And they're actually not yours. They're not mine. They're God's. Samuel always belonged to no one else but God. Children, in the final analysis, belong to no one else but God. You belong to no one else but God. Which is actually a reason to rejoice. I belong to no one else but God. Who else do I need to belong to? Who else do I need to have? The righteous will flourish, will live in love. 
because God is love and will live in him. I have no needs. The steadfast love of the Lord is better than life. Let's believe it and rejoice in the Lord. We have an opportunity to rejoice now uh, by singing a closing song.